My name is uh, Greg Juckett. I'm a family physician. I work at West Virginia University. Uh, welcome to Asian Cross-Cultural Medicine and Culture-Bound Syndromes. Uh, how many of you uh, plan on doing missions in Asia? I see a lot of hands. You're in the right place. Okay. Uh, my wife has been an inspiration to me. She was a missionary kid who grew up in Asia, in Thailand, with Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And we uh, uh, love Southeast Asia and have traveled uh, there very frequently. And um, I just really enjoy um, working there. I want to uh, talk a little bit about how culture influences our concepts of illness. Uh, look at how we do a cross-cultural interview if you're, if you're doing a medical interview. Uh, with somebody from a culture other than, than your own. This can make a major difference in whether or not uh, your plans for care are followed through with. Uh, there are some quirks in Asian culture that you need to know about. One of them is that people are extraordinarily polite. Okay, They will let you believe that you are uh, the next best thing to sliced bread or steaming rice, or whatever the cultural analogy is, and yet uh, they would be too polite to tell you that what you're proposing is not really a, uh, a reasonable thing for, for their lives. That would be disrespectful. Thailand, for instance, is known as the land of smiles, okay? But a smile in Asia can signify something very different from, you know, a cheerful uh, cheerfulness. It might imply embarrassment. It might even be a polite refusal. Uh, and being able to interpret that, I think, is one of the challenges that, that we face. We're going to look at some of the more prevalent health practices and beliefs in some Asian cultures, and we're going to even look at some culture-bound syndromes, which I think are uh, fascinating uh, features of uh, Asian medicine. Now, this topic is big enough for an entire college course. Uh, uh, we're not going to be able to do more than brush the surface in an hour. But I want to tell you that Asian nationalities are vast. And although we do make a few generalizations, I don't want you to think that you can uh, really apply them all across the board. There's a big difference between East Asia, which we're going to focus on today, and, and South Asia, um, and Central Asia and Asia Pacific, okay, and how people live and their cultures are vastly different. But Asians constitute 60% of the world population. And even if you are practicing in the United States, you'll, you might be working with Asian refugees uh, in your, your practice in the, the U.S. A few of the generalizations that I might make is that the family structure is uh, – more hierarchical than is typical in the American family. Uh, there's, uh, sometimes Asians are considered the model minority in the United States because there's such a strong family commitment to work, education, and professional advancement. But this masks the fact that many Asians, even in the U.S., uh, do live in, in poverty, and it's something you shouldn't forget. But often... What the father says in the family, the patriarch says, is uh, mandatory uh, for uh, his, uh, his family members. Accommodation rather than assertiveness is a cultural value. Uh, yes may actually mean no in, in some instances. Uh, uh, and you may often in Asia be told what they think you want to hear as opposed to what you may need to hear. Uh, and, again, you need to listen very carefully when people talk to you uh, to pick up the, the nuances um, that may not be uh, conveyed. Uh, and it's a high-context culture. Have, have you heard the term high-context, low-context cultures before? Uh, this, again, is a generalization, but we're a low-context culture. Uh, when uh, Everything is pretty much spelled out. Uh, for us, and uh, and you know when we sign a business agreement, everything is contractually written out, 
and what you see is what you get to a degree. Asian culture is more nuanced than that, and there are many unspoken rules that you just learn by growing up there or by uh, becoming uh, part of the culture. And it's helpful to have an Asian friend who can tune you in, uh, an ombudsperson or a connector who can tune you into when he says this, he really means that, okay? And uh, let me uh, tell you what uh, high context could signify. For instance, uh, I don't know if any of you have known about American elevator rules. Uh, anybody hear about that, about how you behave on an elevator? Okay. Well, basically, you know, the first person who gets on the elevator usually stands facing the front, facing the control panel, right? Second person who gets on usually goes into the opposite diagonal corner because we've got big space bubbles around us. And then when the corners are all filled by people entering, then the middle starts to fill up. But everybody faces forward. And this is something that your mother didn't teach you, but you just sort of picked up by growing up in the country and observing how other people behave. Now, if you want to create an uncomfortable person, next time you get on the elevator, if there's one person standing by the control panel, this works best if it's somebody of the opposite gender, just walk over to them and stand right beside them. <laughs> you know, and I guarantee you that they'll get off on the next floor because you have violated... American elevator rules. That's an example of a more high-context American quirk, uh, an unwritten rule. Now, when you go to Asia, you'll be violating those rules left and right, you know. Uh, if you want to lick your fingers in a restaurant after eating some fried chicken, that will actually gross out most of the people in the restaurant, even though it might be culturally acceptable back in the U.S., Okay. But, of course, there are similar things in Asia that might offend us, like you know, the Chinese habit of spitting on the, the streets or the way people drink soup. And there are rules that you know, violate each other's norms for behavior, and we have to really learn, learn those rules when we're doing high context. Okay? And then there's the issue of face or personal honor. You never criticize somebody in public, okay? If you have somebody who's working with you uh, or you're teaching in an Asian context and one of your students get, gets out of line, it's okay to reprimand, but it has to be done in a confidential situation, okay? An example might be a, a residency program where a Thai resident who had just completed his internship year was... Uh, basically uh, celebrating with a picnic at the end of his internship. And the American director of the residency came over and slapped him on the back and said, you know, when you started this year, you didn't know your rear from a bedpan or something like that. And he slapped him on the back and thought it was a great joke. The, uh, and, you know, all of his other res residents laughed. It was just a fun. He didn't mean any harm by it. Uh, and most Americans would have taken it in that context. Well, the next day, that resident resigned from the program, left, and would not come back. Okay? He had been humiliated in front of his peers, and he felt he could no longer work in that program anymore. Okay? And we would say, oh, my goodness, he's being too sensitive. But this was an issue of face, and we have to be sensitive to some of those concerns. If we can master these cross-cultural skills, learn the other culture, of course, we can also help our patients as well as our Asian colleagues. Uh, there are better outcomes, better access to care, and certainly uh, we become aware of some of the hazards and benefits of traditional care that they might be getting in Asia. So I want to talk about the cross-cultural interview. This is not me, by the way. It's just somebody who looks like me who was in Time magazine. Uh, but... One of the first barriers we come to is limited English proficiency. You know, people, uh, I'm assuming that most of you don't speak Chinese or uh, aren't fluent in many Asian languages, but often we end up using an interpreter. By the way, interpreter refers to the oral word, and translator refers to the written word. They're very different skills. We use them interchangeably very often in common day speech, but technically we're talking about an interpreter, 
And we should always face and talk directly to our patient, not to the interpreter, who I usually seat next to and slightly behind the uh, patient. And the interpreter should be a wallflower. You shouldn't make eye contact with them. You should never uh, uh, say, tell him to do this or tell her to do that. Uh, Use the first person. I would like you to take the medicine this way. And then your interpreter will, will say that. And you just speak in short phrases, connecting directly with your patient and not setting up three chairs in a triangle where you're tempted to look both ways. And the interview goes a lot better that way. If you use first-person language, speak in short sentences, and the interpreter becomes as inconspicuous as possible. The one place where the interpreter really should speak up is if there's a cultural issue that you're struggling with. And you hit these cultural roadblocks sometimes uh, during a a cross-cultural encounter. Our challenges really are to develop trust and, uh, and this really pays us back later on because people can open up if they, they trust us. Uh, obtaining pertinent history and understanding how illness is viewed by our patient. Now, there's two terms that I like to talk about, illness and disease. Disease is what we think of as what we're out to combat, okay? But illness is the psychosocial uh, view of the disease that the patient has. The patient is concerned with illness, whereas the physician is focused with disease. And very often, even in our own culture, this uh, dichotomy causes us to miss the boat because we don't understand how the patient interprets their, their illness. We have to do a culturally sensitive physical exam. If any of you saw the movie Grand Torino with uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, remember when he went over to the Mong family and he patted the kid on the head? how everybody sort of froze, and uh, the head is the seat of the soul, and you don't touch people on the head without asking permission first, okay? So the family of American tourists who climb up onto the head of a Buddha statue to have their family picture taken does not go over very well in, in Thailand. And, and while in Latin America you can pat the kids on the head, you don't do that uh, to kids in Southeast Asia uh, it causes uh, offense. And you have to, you have to recognize that. Uh, Asia tends to be a low-touch society uh, compared to Latin America, which is a high-touch society. And, uh, again, it's a cultural norm. And when in Rome, you, you do as the, the Romans. Uh, you basically adopt the local standards of care. And then we explain our diagnosis and negotiate treatment. Have any of you heard of the LEARN model for the cross-cultural interview? This has been extremely helpful uh, to me, and it was originally proposed in cross-cultural work in family medicine, but it it basically stands, it's a mnemonic. It stands for listen to the patient and the family's concepts of illness, because most of my Asian cross-cultural things, it's not just the patient, but there's other people in there (laughs) with them. Uh, And then we explain our medical diagnosis to the patient in understandable terms. So you have to listen first, because otherwise you're not going to get with the program. Then you explain your diagnosis, and then you have to acknowledge differences and similarities in your cultural perspective. So I'm going to give you an example of that shortly. We then recommend our diagnostic and therapeutic approaches, uh, what we want them to do for the condition, and negotiate different aspects of care. Because sometimes things that we recommend just don't work. They would work fine here in the States, but maybe uh, washing uh, after applying the scabies medicine is is not going to be an option where they are. You might have to use a different approach, like ivermectin, uh, to treat scabies uh, systemically rather than a topical treatment with permethrin cream. Uh, So listen, explain, acknowledge, recommend, and negotiate. And if you have a little mental outline like this, it can help you through the cross-cultural interview, not just in Asia, but any place that you go in the world. There's also another skill that I've found invaluable, and that's teach back or show me. Have any of you heard that term before? Okay. You do not ask, do you understand what I've just explained to you? Because invariably people will nod, 
Okay? Now, nodding can be like this. It's the polite thing to do. But it doesn't mean I understand and will do what you tell me. Uh, it just means uh, that uh, I hear you. Okay? In India, there's the Indian head waggle, which, looks, which drives me crazy. Um, but it, it's the equivalent of our nodding. It means I, I hear you. And it's involuntary. Even our Indian students at West Virginia University can't stop themselves from doing it because it's been ingrained in them from childhood. Um, and, uh, and in Bulgaria, they actually shake their head no when they, they mean yes. So, uh, so you have to think, where am I, and interpret the body language uh, appropriately. But with teach back, you basically say, I want, to do a good jo- I want to make sure I did a good job of explaining this to you. Would you please explain to me in your own words what you're going to do with this medicine when you get home, okay? And they will then try to tell you what you think you explained so clearly, and you will realize that they don't have a clue, okay? And this is true not just in Asia, again, but everywhere where you're trying to communicate across cultural lines. It's a lot harder than it seems at first, okay? You think you're being clear, and you often don't get across. So they'll tell you something wrong, and then you patiently explain, and then you try to have them tell you until they finally get it right. If it's a technique you're wanting to demonstrate, you do the show-me technique. You know, how we used to teach people how to inject insulin by injecting an orange, And, of course, the famous story is that they come back in diabetic ketoacidosis, and you ask them, well, weren't you giving your injections? And they say, yes, doctor. They pull out an orange that's now the size of a watermelon because it's got a month's worth of insulin in it. Uh, But they never made the transition from injecting the orange to injecting themselves. We laugh, but there are some very similar mistakes that people do make with medication unless we do teach back or show me, okay? And, and then we ask about alternative therapies because there's a host of very strange medical treatment. You're all familiar with the traditional Chinese medicine, I think. But a lot of your uh, patients will have been practicing or will continue to take traditional medications in addition to what uh, you are offering. The Kleinman questions are named after Arthur Kleinman, who came up with a series of questions that can be very, very helpful uh, as an adjunct to the learn uh, part of the interview. Uh, He asked, what do you call the problem you have? What do you think caused it? Why do you think it started when it did? What do you think the illness does? How does it work? How severe is it? Will it have a long or short course? Is it acute or chronic in our language? What kind of treatment do you think is necessary? What are the most important results you hope to receive? And what are the the chief problems it's caused you? And what do you fear most about this illness? By asking these questions, you get to the heart of what the illness means to the patient. Not the disease, but the illness, the psychosocial aspect of the problem. And it can open doors to help you understand how to best treat that condition. Are any of you familiar with the spirit catches you and you fall down? I I make my medical students read this book, okay? I have a course called Culture and Health, and it's mandatory reading. It's a story of a Hmong refugee child from Laos uh, who had intractable epilepsy, and uh, she was uh, based in a, uh, or tried to get medical care from a family practice program in California. She just died two years ago after spending most of her life in a persistent vegetative state. Um, Leah Lee was her name. And it's a a really tragic story because the family had a very different concept of epilepsy. They viewed it as a spirit attack, that spirits would single out children and prey upon them. And so when, if you ask the Kleinman question, what is the problem, they would say, quada peg. Uh, which means a spirit catches you, and of course you fall down and convulse. Instead of the biomedical concept of an electrical storm taking place in the brain and short-circuiting it, this is, uh, they had a spiritual explanation. Now, it wasn't, every cloud is a silver lining, and the uh, spirit, of course, indicated that there was something desirable in their daughter and that she had potential to be a shaman or to be a bridge between 
the spirit world and the the real world. And so, in, a, in effect, some families who had that traditional belief were honored by the fact that a daughter might have been, been chosen by the spirit. Well, what, what caused it? Well, the family believed that the, Leah's older sister, Yair, slammed the screen door and frightened Leah's soul out of the body, which rendered her susceptible to the demonic attack. How do you feel about it? Well, it makes us sad to see Leah angry at Yair, but it also makes her special because she could grow up to become a shaman for her people. What should be done about it? Well, she should take medicine for about a week, but not get any blood tests. After she gets better, she should stop the medicine. Well, that's what they were doing. They were putting on seizure medicine. They would stop it in a week or two. She would go into status epilepticus. Uh, eventually, they became so frustrated with the family that they called Child Protective Services. It turned out to be a disaster. Her seizures did not get better, even under the care of the state, and, uh, and they ended up uh, having to return her uh, to her family. But trust had been totally devastated at that point, and there was a state of enmity between the medical team and the, uh, uh, the uh, Hmong community in general. What should have been done? Uh, what have you done? Well, she's been treated at home with Hmong medicines and rituals, okay? Um, if we do the explain, see, we have, we have gone through the listening part now where we've actually listened to the family's perspective of what the problem is with their daughter. This was not done, obviously, because people just treated her like any other American uh, seizure or epilepsy patient. But then we have to explain in lay language what we understand by seizure disorder and symptoms, emphasizing the need for long-term treatment and when we start to acknowledge differences, we can ask, what do you fear most about the illness? Well, that her soul might leave and never return, which is what basically happened, I think, when she entered that persistent vegetative state. And then acknowledge any similarities or things that we have in common with the worldview. Now, I grant you that there's not much, okay? We've got a rather shaky platform here, and it's going to be fairly difficult. But we have to empathize with the family's fear and frustration and make sure that they view us as allies in this situation as opposed to having an antagonistic uh, relationship with them. For recommendations, we want to uh, come to an agreement that meds are needed until the seizures resolve, but it might take a long time, longer than they, they understand right now. And ideally, we would use a seizure medication that would not require regular blood levels because that caused the family a lot of distress drawing that blood and also uh, have regular short-term follow-ups in order to reassure the family and keep them compliant uh, with the medication. And, you know, if we could do this over again, this would be how it would be done. No guarantee of success, but I think that things would have gone a lot better than what they, they did. And uh, so that's an example of how the Learn and Kleinman can be, can be used we have other cultural issues that we are confronted with. Eye contact, okay? Less westernized Asians may not make eye contact with you unless they're of equal status and gender. So a lot of women from the hill tribes and so forth will look at the ground or look away from me, and it's not disrespectful. It's not that they are, uh, it would be disrespectful for them to look at me in the eye. Uh, Native American populations also have this tendency where direct eye contact uh, is often, uh, often signifies confrontation or sexual interest or things that you're not willing uh, to convey. Um, I mentioned that it's a low-touch society. There can be strict gender issues, especially in Muslim nations where it's better to have a same-sex provider. And facial expressions and body languages can, can be misinterpreted. Uh, smiling uh, and giggling can signify embarrassment as opposed to happiness. And uh, so the smile can mean many, many different things. We also have issues of time and punctuality that vastly differ from our own. And in Indonesia, they have a term I love. It's called rubber time. Okay? Rubber time stretches to accommodate the needs of people. And the needs of people are more important 
than your schedule, all right? So in America and in parts of Europe, uh, you know, you have to be punctual. And if you're late, you, you don't get seen. It might, if you're dealing with uh, a Asian immigrant community, you may want to set up a different type of appointment structure where instead of everybody having their own time, you've got sort of a rolling appointment type of thing where people arrive and are seen in the order in which they arrive, but may not have strict time constraints where if they're five minutes late, you know, they're going to miss that appointment because they may never come back again to, to be seen. Uh, so we talk about speaking slowly, simply, but not excessively loudly, okay? Sometimes that can be problematic. And also be aware that nodding vigorously does not signify understanding and do not ask, do you understand what I'm telling you? Because the answer is invariably yes. Use teach back instead, okay? So this is a Filipina nursing student who was corrected in class by her professor, but instead of uh, being uh, quiet, she then started to giggle uncontrollably in front of the class, and she was written up as a lack of professional respect. Uh, but in, in fact, this was a, you know, a typical response to acute embarrassment. Uh, and it was just culturally misinterpreted by her Western professor. And uh, so it uh, was embarrassment, and they just made the situation worse by putting her through that additional sanction. Culturally inappropriate gestures. In many parts of the world, uh, gesturing like we sometimes do is used to summon dogs uh, or animals, not people. In Latin America and many parts of Asia, you beckon by bringing your hand palm down towards yourself. And this signifies much more respect. I think we, we all know that displaying your feet or putting them up on something where the soles of the feet are visible is considered disrespectful. Never touch someone with your foot, uh, especially with the shoe on it. Uh, and we know that uh, the thumbs up sign, for instance, uh, which is perfectly okay in Brazil, is totally rude in Iran. Okay, And uh, to make matters worse, the okay symbol that we sometimes do as a crude sexual gesture in places like Brazil and you just have to know what part of the world you are before you start to uh, use gestures. Uh, name conventions. Most Asian names are, uh, especially in the land of their origin, are uh, written and pronounced what we would say would be backward. But that's, of course, our, our own cultural uh, view of it. Uh, the surname uh, precedes the given name. Uh, uh, so... Uh, Shu Miao in Chinese would be Miao Shu in our common English use, where Miao would be the, the given name and Shu the surname. But they're run together, and most uh, Chinese, when they travel to America, will flip them back you know, for understanding. And married women often don't take their husband's name. If you're in Thailand, uh, Kun or Mr. And then just the first name is, usually suffices, and you usually skip the surname. And the friends all use nicknames, okay? So I'll be, say, Mr. Greg, okay? And, uh, and it would be Miss Mary, very much like the American South that I lived in. Uh, and uh, so get used to the name conventions. Left hand, of course, is often used for personal hygiene in many Asian cultures and obviously is inappropriate to hand medical samples or business cards uh, with the left hand. I've seen uh, medical samples discarded in the, in the parking lot because uh, people offered them with their left hand. And it, uh, although uh, people wash their left hands after toileting, it's still considered residually contaminated. And so... It's okay to offer something with both hands, like your business card, this way, but you never use the left hand alone. And you don't eat from a communal platter with your left hand because you'll be the last person 
<laughs> after you reach into it with your left hand, nobody else will touch, touch that dish. Okay? Uh, ice water is often refused because it upsets the hot-cold balance. And many uh, people, uh, I had a, a, a friend who was a Chinese traditional uh, doctor who whenever uh, he came to live with us in the States for a while, and whenever we were drinking iced beverages, he would become visibly upset because even though we had a surplus of yang energy being Americans and being flushed and red, uh, he was convinced that we would kill ourselves by, by drinking iced beverages. And so it's, it's not a, a common thing. As a matter of fact, after uh, childbirth, the Chinese have a sitting month where the, a woman will stay uh, enclosed in a hot chamber with the child and not even a draft of air will be allowed to enter the, the room and they will just drink hot teas, hot beverages. The cold is considered pathogenic uh, and there's a, a fear of cold entering that child and causing harm. So direct eye contact is a problem. The number four is unlucky in China because the word uh, it sounds very similar to the Chinese word for death. It's the equivalent of our number 13, so they don't have a, a fourth floor, perhaps, because nobody would stay on the fourth floor. You go from three to, to five, just like we don't often have a 13th floor in some of our hotels, okay? And have you heard of the term guanxi? This is an Asian concept that's very important, but in many Asian cultures, it's your professional network of contacts that really makes a difference. And, and, uh, and when you know somebody, one of the obligations of friendship is to come through for them. And sometimes the requests can be things beyond what you're able to meet. Like a, you know, a Chinese friend may want their kids to study at Harvard and they expect you to somehow make that happen. Okay? Well, I can't get my own kids into Harvard. <laughs> And so, uh, but uh, we, we, have, uh, we have these cultural misunderstandings sometimes that come through uh, our friendships and connections as to what we can do for each other. Mental illness has been stigmatized even in our own culture and continues to be so, but it's probably about 20 to 50 years um, behind that in many Asian countries right now. If you have a mental illness in your family uh, in Asia, you try to hide it uh, because mental illness, as everyone knows, might be hereditary. And if your sister, uh, would say, say if uh, a brother is mentally ill, nobody will marry the sister, okay? It stigmatizes the entire family. And so there are lots of Chinese homes where a mentally ill person is kept without seeking treatment, uh, essentially in the basement. Uh, uh, and the stigma can be pretty overwhelming. When people present with mental illness, it's often with somaticized symptoms. So they come and complain about being tired or having an imbalance or having a particular physical problem like abdominal pain. Uh, uh, one Chinese graduate student who saw me at West Virginia University would uh, basically came to see me because of persistent vomiting. But uh, the vomiting always took place when he was going to work in the morning. He was having a very difficult time with his advisor, and he would actually, actually walking into the lab, he would become sick to his stomach and often lose his breakfast. Uh, it didn't happen at other times. He had nothing physically wrong with him. He was just so overwrought by uh, the work that he was doing that he couldn't do it any longer. Well, out of this somatization, a lot of culture-bound psychiatric syndromes have emerged. One of them is called Taijin Kaiofusho, common in Japan. It's an intense anxiety about offending others, and it's really a pathological exa exaggeration of your normal uh, desire to conform. Uh, there's this uh, theory, it's called the uh, adaptation theory of culture. And basically it means that cultures have adaptive value, just like other traits that uh, people might have picked up. 
and that on the Japanese islands, because of crowding, politeness has been developed to a very high degree. Uh, and it allows a lot of people to coexist peacefully with each other uh, in circumstances where social conflict might otherwise be very problematic and lead to a breakdown in society. So most Japanese youth are raised with the desire to conform, to fit in, to not give offense. And one of the worst things that you can do in Japan is to create you know, offense in other people. Uh, Americans are much more laid back about that and don't care as much about what other people think. But in this case, when Japanese people uh, are extremely stressed or under, under duress, sometimes there's a pathological exaggeration and a social phobia develops. And it's often a phobia that they have some sort of deformed body part or uh, that there's a, uh, a body odor or something about them that makes them repellent. And I saw one Japanese grad student who had not left his apartment for a while. He was clinically depressed. He denied being depressed, of course, but his problem was uh, intense body odor and bad breath. And he felt that he was absolutely repellent to everybody who came in contact with him. He didn't have either of those problems. I need to, I mean, his hygiene was superb, but he was clinically depressed. And when we were able to get him, convince him finally to start taking some antidepressant medication. His delusions of body odor and bad breath resolved very quickly. And this was Taijin Kaiofusho, a well-recognized disorder in people used to practicing in Japan, but very much overlooked in the United States. I need to add now that this poor Japanese student had seen several other practitioners complaining of the same thing and just been brushed off. They hadn't given him any consideration that it might be a depression, but that they just told him that they couldn't find anything wrong and let him, you know, go without helping him, obviously. Um, but it was a manifestation of, uh, of uh, mental distress with somatic or delusional symptoms. And... Um, we can see this in other, even in our own culture, uh, some of the eating disorders that we have, like anorexia nervosa, is only found in Western societies where a thin body habitus is desirable. Okay, you don't see it in many Asian countries, although that's starting to change with Westernization. Uh, but uh, a lot of people believe that uh, anorexia is a culture-bound syndrome of the West, and that we, too, have our own uh, quirkiness uh, here. Other Japanese uh, culture-bound syndromes might be hikikomori, which is a withdrawal from society uh, with loss of social skills, uh, kinshitsu, a fear of meeting people, intense anxiety, and feelings of inadequacy, almost like an agoraphobia. But the culture molds the symptoms that people have. A fascinating culture-bound syndrome from Korea is Hwabyeong, which is uh, found mostly in middle-aged women who are in unhappy marriages and are suppressing a lot of anger and distress. And their unhappiness is often manifested by a heavy mass effect that they feel in their chest or abdomen. And they go through, in the United States, major workups for abdominal disorders, CGI specialists, but, in fact, if you do a, a careful history, you'll find that they're also sleepless, they have dry mouth, they have palpitations, all the symptoms of anxiety and depression. They just won't tell you that they're anxious and depressed. And the treatment, of course, is to find out what is causing the source of the family stress and to try to relieve that. Uh, wind illness uh, is another culture-bound syndrome, a fear that being exposed to cold or wind will deplete your energy and basically drain your batteries and even cause, cause death. So there's this obsession with keeping warm, and even you'll see people bundled up in warm clothing even in the summer months. Uh, then there's some more weird stuff, okay? Semen loss uh, anxiety, uh, or shenkui, it's called dot in India, is a belief that your vital fluids are, are being lost 
and that this will cause weakness that may even be life-threatening. And your, your vital fluids represent your chi or uh, energy in the, the body. Uh, koro or, or rakju in, in Thailand is even more bizarre, sometimes called penis panic, okay? And uh, it's a fear that your genitalia will retract into your body, uh, either due to inappropriate behavior or uh, uh, very often it's just from exposure to cold. And there's this tragic comic event that took place on a beach in Vietnam where little boys were swimming in the ocean. It was chilly. And, of course, retraction occurred. Uh, A mother noticed this and realized she couldn't see her son's genitalia, went into a panic and started screaming. And then the other mothers called their children in. And pretty soon there was mass hysteria on the beach. And in the emphasis to try to pull out the organs, one penis was actually detached uh, from, from a child in the ensuing melee. And, of course, they all rushed to the hospital. Uh, and uh, so, it, you know, it's also sometimes thought to be attributed to a sorcery or other uh, uh, attacks. Uh, again, uh, in Malaysia we have one word that's actually entered the language. It's called amok. You've heard of running amok. Uh, our closest equivalent would be going postal. Uh, and uh, it's a violent dissociative episode, usually in males, uh, where you act out and then have no memory of your violent uh, action. You know, you basically say, well, why are all these bodies here? Where's all the blood? But you were the perpetrator. And people, again, emphasize accommodation, not conflict. And sometimes people can suppress anger until something in them breaks and they have a dissociative episode where they act out. And they just, something snaps. Uh, Lata is another peculiarity where there's hypersensitivity to fright or startle. And after being startled, somebody actually behaves in a totally different, often bizarre fashion for a while. They have a brief dissociative episode where they may act like a clown and then have no recollection of that after. You basically startle them out of themselves in some way, and they're no longer themselves for a short period of time. So these things can be encountered when you're in certain Asian societies, uh, and they seem very strange to us, uh, but you, you may encounter them you know, in your work overseas. My personal favorite of all of them, and I have to mention this even though it's a rare one, is uh, Guru Rumba, or Wild Man, Syndrome of Papua New Guinea. And I've traveled to Papua New Guinea. I've never seen this, but it's a transient psychosis where a married, you know, usually older man, like, would uh, suddenly run off into the uh, bush with some worthless item, okay? Imagine me just grabbing a whole package of Charmian toilet paper and rushing off into the forest, okay? And there I'm like King Nebuchadnezzar during his brief psychosis. I I guard my toilet paper with my life and I live uh, like a a wild man basically in the the woods. Uh, Often people have found uh, these guys out there and they seem to have disturbed speech. They don't recognize friends. They're a little bit clumsy. After several days, the psychosis wears off. Somebody looks at their toilet paper and say, what in the world was is this doing here? And they, they drop it and they walk back and resume their normal life as though nothing had happened. Uh, so a brief transient psychosis. I think this is a perfect metaphor for material madness that affects us in the West and that many of us suffer from lifelong Guru Rumba episodes <laughs> that we need to break out of, okay? Well, the amazing thing is, is, yes, there are treatments for most of them, and antipsychotics would probably work for this, although time seems to work as well. And antidepressants work for Taijin Kayafusho and for Wabyung. And so the same treatments that we would use to treat analogous conditions here, it's just that the, the, in the culture-bound syndromes, the presentation is what is different. Uh, 
and, uh, and it's being able to not be thrown by the presentation so that you miss the diagnosis, like so many people did with my uh, Japanese student with body odor, because if you focus on the body odor, you're not going to get to the bottom of the issue. There is no body odor. It's a presenting symptom of acute mental distress and depression. And, uh, and recognizing that and starting the appropriate treatment, the challenge is getting them to take the antidepressant medication because they will insist that they're not depressed. Again, it's stigmatized. Many non-acculturated Asians will think that counseling is for the incurably mentally ill, and although they may agree to see a counselor, they never follow uh, through. Of course, the next generation of kids who are born in the United States do. Uh, they've adapted the American view, but, but newly you know, uh, arrived Asian immigrants are very adverse to getting mental health care. We don't have time to really cover it because I want to have some time for questions, but you've probably heard of nightmare death syndromes. A lot of people attribute them all to a short or long QT syndrome, but actually it's more complicated than that. And these are usually healthy, young Southeast Asian men who have a sudden onset of death during a hypnopompic hallucination that they have that frightens them. And although this cultural thing, which happens during sleep paralysis and is sometimes called hagging, where you have this, these vivid hallucinations when you're in a state of sleep paralysis waking up, can be terrifying. For most people, that's all they are. For some of these people from Southeast Asia, it actually causes sudden cardiac death. Uh, and uh, uh, it has various names, but often there's a sense of pressure on the chest. In Thailand, they call it the widow ghost because it makes widows. Uh, and this thing crawls on the chest of men and basically kills them. But uh, you, uh, and in Brugada syndrome, there's a higher risk in Asians as, and you get a shark fin EKG with right bundle branch block and ST elevation. Uh, and it's an autosomal dominant uh, pre predisposition that people have. But sudden fright can trigger this. And if somebody survives their initial attack, you can put it in an implantable defibrillator, which can save their life. Unfortunately, many men die on the first attack, and you don't get a chance to put that defibrillator in. Something interesting to read about. Traditional Chinese medicine is too complex to discuss here, but let me tell you that many patients are using it even outside of China. Uh, we use There's cupping to draw blood to areas. There's this idea of hot and cold duality, uh, and uh, where people tell you that cold uh, causes illness, I think the closest thing to that in Western society is your mother told you to bundle up or you'll catch your death of cold or pneumonia, when you go outside. I think Asians just take that to the next step up uh, uh, and uh, emphasize it even more. And I just use a compromise view. I say, well, the cold exposure may weaken your system to enable bacteria to invade the body. It's not necessarily the cold itself, but the cold you know, renders you less uh, able to defend yourself. This is moxibustion. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's a form of acupuncture where instead of putting the needle in, you actually take a little piece of moxie, uh, which is a dried Artemisia herb. It's in a, a, usually dried in the shape of a cigar. You cut off a little plug of that. And in a Western context, we would stick an acupuncture needle in and apply the moxie and light it on top of the needle, and it would transmit the heat down into the acupuncture point. But as it's often practiced in folk acupuncture, you put the... the uh, herb directly against the skin and light it, and it looks like cigarette burns. So you might see somebody who comes in looking like they're abused, like this Cambodian man who actually has just been having a medical treatment. Coining is often a way of releasing that wind cold from the body, and the more bruising or ecchymosis you get, the more effective it is. And in places like Laos and Cambodia, they'll treat everything from heart attacks to the sniffles this way. And uh, this is an example of coining. And sometimes child, children with this problem have been referred to adult protective services uh, as being abused children 
when in fact they're just getting medical care. And it's not painful or harmful to the, to the child at all. Mongoloid spots common in Asia are often mistaken as bruises in this country as well. I'd like to urge all of you to consider taking a physician's practical guide to culturally appropriate care. It's an online course in cross-cultural medicine. That's good for nine credits. And it's an amazingly good experience. There are a host of different uh, resources that you can use. Uh, and there are even uh, some sites that have uh, Asian language and diet handouts uh, that uh, you can use. Uh, Spiral uh, has selective patient information in Asian languages uh, that uh, can be used uh, in practices in, in this country as well. Uh, so a lot of material on the web. Uh, and uh, I just encourage you, it's a fascinating area of medicine. Asia is an amazing area of the, the world. And there's, this just is the starting point for uh, you know, a whole career, hopefully for you, in learning about uh, Asia. Yes? Um, would you go back a couple slides to that? Yes, I will. Mm -hmm. And uh, any other questions? We just have a few minutes left. Yes, in the back. Oh, that's a loaded question. The question is, what do I think about Chinese herbal medicine? Uh, well, one of the best drugs for uh, treating malaria today is uh, artemisinin, okay, uh, artemether. And it is derived from the Chinese wormwood. It was originally a Chinese remedy for summer heat fever that you got in the late summer when malaria was being transmitted. It's a perfect example of a uh, Chinese <coughs> traditional cure that, was very effective uh, for medical uh, reasons. And uh, I think that uh, there is hocus-pocus in it. I, I certainly wouldn't take uh, dried uh, earthworm or snakeskin in my, my teas. Uh, there's, some things have been passed down through tradition, but some things do, do work. And I had a whole new level of respect for traditional Chinese care when my friend uh, Lu Zhang, or Zhong Lu, uh, came to live with us because he went to our neighbor's house and by examining their uh, tongue and pulses, he was able to diagnose hypothyroidism and other conditions that were later confirmed medically. Uh, and uh, he uh, was a skilled diagnostician. He just used a totally different approach from what we use. And one thing that working in Asia has taught me is that there's more than one way to skin a cat, metaphorically. There's more than one way to diagnose disease. And, uh, and we can learn a lot from our Asian colleagues. Uh, and they use a lot of herbal medicine, especially for uh, viral illnesses and for fatigue and conditions that Western medicine don't treat very well. As a matter of fact, I would say they do less harm with their herbal medicine than we do by inappropriate prescribing of antibiotics to our, our patients. Yeah. But we're out of time. Thank you very much. If any of you have questions, please come up and speak to me.